Thanks, Elia. Morning, church. Well, if you are growing weary of the Life of David series, this is the same as Psalm 18. So for you this morning, as we walk through 2 Samuel 22, you can just pretend this is Psalm 18. Let me pray, and let's turn to the Lord's Word together. Father, I pray this morning that Each person who's come into this room, perhaps rejecting you or ignoring you or purposefully setting their heart against you, I pray that you would help them to see something of themselves and of you this morning that melts their heart and resistance. That they would see a God mighty in strength, mighty in power, who draws near A God who comes and rescues. A God who deals with our sin himself. And for those of us who belong to you, I pray that you would free us of sometimes a a functional boredom with you. I pray that we would see your explosive power this morning as you act on behalf of your people. We look to you now, and Holy Spirit, we depend on your help for the preaching of your word. Prepare our hearts to receive it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. How does the man trust God so fully that he sleeps soundly the night before his cancer surgery? How does the high school sophomore endure cruelty and scorn in class as he defends his faith in God? How does the widow confess with tear-stained cheeks her hope in the resurrection even as she watches her husband's body lowered into the ground? How does the young mother move into the remote village that killed her husband with a toddler on her lap, intent to withstand the risk, to love those people, to learn their language, and to share with them the hope she has in Christ? Each of these four can do this because they're convinced that God can sustain and protect his people through trouble. David writes the song in 2 Samuel 22, which is also Psalm 18, almost word for word, as a declaration of praise to a God who can deliver his people from their enemies, from the Philistines who repeatedly confront David and from King Saul who attempts to murder him more than a half dozen times. My main idea this morning is that if God is your deliverer, if God is the one in whom you hope for deliverance, then you have no cause for fear. There is no cause for fear if you hope in God as your deliverer. Now, our enemy isn't wearing an Israelite crown. Our enemy is not wearing a Philistine army uniform. But we are midstream in a spiritual battle. Our sin broke the back of God's good creation. Our sin unleashed a curse on creation that affects the nature we live in, our bodies, our souls, and our very lives. But if God is our deliverer, then there is no cause for fear, no matter what the enemy is that stands in front of us. Instead, the church and individual Christians can be marked by bold dependence on King Jesus. That's our hope. In Psalm 118.6, we read, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. 
What can mere man do to me? If God is our deliverer, then we have no cause for fear. And so we're going to, we're going to pause and consider our embattled backdrop, David's and ours, and then we'll take a, a look at four aspects of how God delivers. How is God our deliverer? And Lord willing, we'll all leave here more confident in God's ability to deliver and put our hope in Him alone. The embattled backdrop. Elia read the first part of our sermon passage for this morning, which is the second half of first, 2 Samuel 20, 21. And it tees up the song that David writes for us that's recorded in 2 Samuel 22. We're told in 2 Samuel 22, 1, that David writes this song because he's grateful for the way that God delivered him over and over again from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of Saul. That's who he has in mind, King Saul and the literally gigantic Philistine army. So we have four wars that Israel fought against the Philistines that the writer gives to us. And as Juan David pointed out last week, we're no longer in chronological order. Chapters 21 through 24 is an epilogue where the narrator is putting things together to draw the life of David to a conclusion. And here are the four battles. Each of them zooms in on a particular Philistine giant that's slayed by a brave Israelite soldier. In the first war, David grows so weary in the battle that he's about to be killed by a giant. And Abishai, you remember, we've, we've seen him the last couple weeks, steps in and kills the man on behalf of David. And then in the second battle, another giant is killed by Sebekai the Hushethite. And then in the third battle, another giant named Goliath is killed by El-Hana from Bethlehem. And then in the fourth battle, the six-fingered man, not the one from the Princess Bride. <laughs> this one has also six toes. He's killed by David's brother, Jonathan. Now these battles along with a reminder of Saul's wicked murder attempt, set the backdrop for David's authorship of this particular song, a song that's translated for the people of Israel to sing in worship to God in Psalm 18. Now, David's life is filled with enemies who sought to take his life and disrupt his reign as king. The Christian life is a life of struggle, not leisure. Church family, we have an embattled backdrop ourselves. We are midstream in a spiritual battle that's been raging since the Garden of Eden, since Adam and Eve, Eve rebelled against God's leadership. Sin, that is, rebellion against God, is the fountainhead. It's the source of our spiritual battle. Our sin has unleashed a curse, and that curse manifests and reveals itself in a variety of ways. Here's five. Disasters. Earthquakes, floods, and wildfires plague the world we live in, and that groaning is a result of sin. Diseases ransack our bodies. They don't function as they were intended, and that's a result of sin. Demons, Satan, and all other angels who are currently living in open rebellion against God are working to deceive and to distract God's people, and that's a result of sin. Disobedience. Our disobedience and the disobedience of other people inflict our souls and they pollute and complicate our relationships and they steal our joy. This is a result of our sin. And then, of course, death stands to threaten us 
from the future. Now, this list may not be comprehensive, but I think it's close. The point is we are engulfed in a spiritual battle. Sin's curse has spread across God's creation like the Canadian wildfires. Only there is no dissipation of the smoke. It doesn't subside. It only worsens. The curse grows deeper and deeper in God's creation. Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is the fountainhead of the spiritual battle that God's people are engaged in. It inflicts our worlds and our bodies. It flows out of our hearts. It energizes the spiritual forces around us. And ultimately, it ends in death. And we are not able to withstand this spiritual battle in our own strength. Like an infection, sin grows worse. Here's Ephesians 2, where Paul says, We were dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, that is God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the bad news. The Christian life is not a life of leisure. It's a life of spiritual struggle. We live in a world that's been affected by sin, and that's the embattled backdrop. And against that backdrop, David presents God accurately as our deliverer. Look at verses 2 through 6 of 2 Samuel 22, where we see that God is a stronghold protecting his people. Look at verse 2. David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. David is persuaded that God can protect his people from their enemies. When enemies threaten, David says, God is our stronghold. God is a rock, a fortress, a refuge. When enemies threaten to undo us, David proclaims God is near. When a shark is in the water, swimmers find refuge on shore. In a torrential downpour, a motorcyclist takes refuge under a bridge. We can flee to God for protection. We can take shelter from enemy fire. We can take a knee and we can catch our breath. We can step behind the shield blocking the hurricane winds. But there's more built into the words the Holy Spirit inspires David to write down for us. The stronghold isn't just something that David flees to. The stronghold moves. The stronghold moves out to protect its own. God is a deliverer. He is the horn announcing salvation. He is a savior who moves out to rescue. And of course, we see that with plainness in the work of Jesus on our behalf. Sometimes I laugh at what YouTube thinks I want to see and what it puts in my feed. There's a video of this five-year-old girl who comes home from school and she has a backpack on her back and this raccoon who has rabies clearly starts to, to attack her leg. And she's crying out at the front door. She's crying out, she's crying out. And all of a sudden her mom comes barreling through the front door, looks at what's happening, 
grabs the raccoon with one hand and her daughter with the other and is standing there with this raccoon outstretched in front of her with her daughter on her back. She pushes the daughter into the house and gets ready to throw the raccoon and then realizes that her sons are out in the, in the, the driveway playing. So she holds on to the raccoon while she tells the boys to go into the house and then she throws this thing across the yard. You can look it up this afternoon. <laughs> this mom was a deliverer. She was a source of refuge and she didn't wait for her daughter to come to her. She went to her daughter and she handled business. David is under tremendous strain. Look at verse four. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, that is the deeps, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. He's deeply distressed by the circumstances that he's in. And he labors to find words that help us to feel what he's feeling. And what does David do when he's under distress? David turns and he calls upon the Lord who is worthy of all praise. Now, in his distress, to turn and call upon the Lord requires two things from David. First, David needs to feel his need. He needs to feel that he is outmatched by his circumstances. He needs a sense of spiritual humility that he cannot wage this battle in his own strength. And then to turn to the Lord in the middle of distress, David needs to be convinced that the Lord can actually help. That in that moment, God actually wants to help David and that God can help David, that he is, has a desire and an ability to provide the help that David needs. Now, don't you find it's true that, that we pray when we feel most desperate? When the pressure is up, we feel the most desperation to take a knee and to plead for help. Theologian Michael Reeves says that prayerlessness springs from spiritual pride. Prayerlessness springs from spiritual pride. Therefore, spiritual humility leads to desperate prayers. This is why our walk with Jesus experiences such surges of growth during times of trial. So what would it take for us to take David's posture all the time? What if spiritual dependence and humility marked our lives consistently? But there's another reason why you may not pray. You may not believe that God listens or cares that you're in trouble, or you may not believe that God has the power and the ability to deliver you. David disagrees. In verses 7 through 20, God is seen as a thunderclap delivering his people. Verse 7, in my distress, David said, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Don't ever think the heavens are brass. Don't ever fall prey to that. God hears you when you cry. He turns his head to listen when you cry out to him. Your cries climb up to his ears and he doesn't just hear you crying for help. He responds. Look at verse eight. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because God was angry. Why is God angry? God is angry because enemies have confronted his people and his people have cried out to him for deliverance. And creation says, uh-oh, 
The earth reels and rocks. The foundations of the heavens tremble and quake. The creator is angry and nature knows to submit. We spend a lot of time acting like we're bored with God. Don't underestimate him. Verse 9, smoke went out up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. And then he speaks, verse 14, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. The Lord has thundered from heaven on behalf of his people. He sends arrows like bolts of lightning. The oceans recede until their channels are visible. The foundations of the world are laid bare. That's the explosive power of our God. Creation lies down in submission to its creator. And then he delivers, verse 17. God sent from on high and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Why does God get angry? He's angry because enemies have threatened his people. Why does God deliver? Delight. Delight in his people. David affirms that God delivered and rescued him because God delighted in him. Do you feel the sweet comfort in this? The powerful God who causes the Atlantic Ocean to tremble and causes Mount Everest and the Alps to shudder before his anger, he uses his authority to rescue his people. And he rescues his people because he delights in us. He enjoys us. He takes pleasure in us. His heart is invested in our future. And so when our enemies rise to threaten and taunt us, we cry out to God in our distress. And he climbs to his feet and he moves like a thunderclap to deliver us from harm. This does not mean that David experienced a life of tranquility and ease. No, he's just teed up this entire song by saying the Philistines attacked him four different times. And King Saul attacked him more than a half dozen times. God's deliverance of us is not safety from trouble. It's not what we're promised. God's deliverance is preservation through trouble. He will be with us in every dark valley and every bitter storm. And he will see us through to the other side. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. None of these things will separate us from the love of God in Christ. No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. He rescued us because he delights in us. And so when your chronic pain makes you cry out in the night, or when friends turn on you for following Jesus, or when you sell all your stuff and you move to that unreached people group, or when you feel powerless in the face of lust or anger, or when the doctor gives you less than a year to live, or when you have no way to pay your mortgage this month, you remember that God is a thunderclap delivering his people. He hears you when you cry out to him and he will respond. He will carry you safely through every source of trouble all the way to the other side. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, present things or things to come, powers, heights, depth, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And David now thanks God for the victory. Look at verses 31 to 37. God is a wellspring empowering his people. We spent part of 4th of July at Mount Vernon with some of you. We saw some of you there. And they fired muskets and they fired off a cannon to kick off their daytime fireworks, which was chalk in the sky. Most of the crowd loved the crashes of sound and the chalk that filled the sky, but not everyone enjoyed it. Many of the toddlers and the dogs wanted to get as far away from the noise as possible. To some, the majesty and the concussion of the musket shots and the fireworks generated a sense of beauty and awe. Look at this. And that same fireworks display provoked a sense of fearful dread in others. I think this is the point God's making through the balance of David's song in verses 21 to 51. Some are compelled by God's glory, His holiness, and His offer of mercy. There's something compelling about this God. Verse 31 says, He's a shield to all who take refuge in Him. But others, they see the same glorious, holy, merciful God, and they are repelled by Him. They rise and they arrogantly reject Him. And these 30 verses bounce back and forth between God's judgment of His enemies and God's shielding of his people. David starts by highlighting the generous way that God has acted toward him. Now these verses, if you haven't read them yet this week, they're going to strike you as peculiar based on where we've been in the life of David. But remember that this is probably written long before Uriah and Bathsheba come onto the scene. David says these are written in the days when God delivered him from the hand of Saul and from his enemies. And we remember David's remarkable faithfulness in those years. Look at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not, not wickedly departed from God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside I was kept, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt and the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Now, these verses can make us nervous because it sounds like a works-based righteousness. But I don't think that's what we're seeing here. I don't think that this is about David's salvation, about the time when God saves David and transfers him from death to life. 
In other words, David isn't reconciled to God because of good works. Instead, I think this is an explanation of how God responds to people who are already reconciled to him. People who have already been made alive in Christ. This is how God responds to his people's faithful repentance and obedience and devotion and earnestness and humility. God is not a vending machine who spits out physical blessings to those who obey him. But David does labor to help us feel how God responds to us when the slope of our life is meant to please him. When the slope of our hearts are meant to bring delight to his heart. Look at verses 26 and following. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked people, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty, the arrogant, to bring them down. For you are my light, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. To the merciful, God is merciful. To the blameless, God is blameless. He deals purely with the pure. He saves the humble. He lights up the darkness. He gives strength to run against a troop or if you need it, to leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. Now, I said God is a, well, a wellspring, empowering his people because the power to obey does not come from ourselves. It is not naturally inside of us. We cannot please God like this, even those of us who are saved according to our own strength. Martin Luther said that our righteousness is alien righteousness. What he meant is it comes from outside of us and it comes to us. This is the point of Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God is doing the work of cleaning and cleansing. And then he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The power to obey the Lord comes from this miracle prophesied in Ezekiel 36. A wellspring sends water flowing into a thirsty land. The power to live a life pleasing to God comes from his power rushing through us in the presence and power of God's Spirit. We do not need to be embarrassed to declare that God rewards the righteous faithfulness of his people. That doesn't need to cause us to blush. When we devote ourselves to the word, when we turn from sin and choose righteousness instead, when we say no to the things of this world because we believe in his promises yet to come, he rewards us, not with great wealth and good health, not even with peace from the trials of this life. He rewards us with rewards money cannot buy, rewards that thieves cannot steal and rust cannot destroy and moths cannot consume, eternal riches that no eye has seen, that no ear has heard about, that no heart has thought to imagine. 
And in addition to giving us these future rewards that will last forever, He gives us the fortification of Himself. He is present with us through every stormy sea. He is a wellspring empowering His people. And now finally, God is a king defeating His enemies. Verses 38 to the end. God is a king defeating his enemies. The same fireworks lit up the sky. Some were compelled in awe and some were repelled and terrified. God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. But to those who reject him, they will not find refuge. In fact, they will cry out to the Lord on the last day, but he will not answer them. Verse 42. Notice how David the king received power to defeat his enemies. God's king acts as God's instrument of judgment. Look at verse 38. David writes, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise and they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. God's king is the instrument of judgment. God's king leads God's people into battle in the time of David to defeat his enemies. Friends, today, today, right now is the day of salvation. Because when judgment falls at some point in the future, the time for repentance will have passed. It will cry out to him and he will not hear their voice. And notice the extent of the defeat of God's enemies. His authority is global. We saw that earlier when the mountains and the oceans just submit before him. Look at verse 44. David says, You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. The nations are said to serve David. Foreigners come cringing and cowering before the king. They've lost heart. They come trembling out of their fortresses. Enemies from across creation are defeated. And David rejoices? David has spent his life up until this point being pursued and attacked by enemies of God's people. And now he says, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The just judgment of God's enemies, that is his judgment of his enemies by his king is synonymous with the deliverance of his people. God's judgment of his enemies will be synonymous with the relief or the freedom 
or the deliverance of God's people. Paul makes this point in 2 Thessalonians 1. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Church in Thessalonica, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord. What David observes in 2 Samuel 22, Paul prophesies in 2 Thessalonians 1. God will repay those who afflict us. King Jesus will return with his angels inflicting vengeance on those who reject God and disobey the gospel of Christ. And the judgment of God's enemies will also be relief for God's people. His repayment of his enemies will be the relief of his people. Here's verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Church, if this doesn't humble and sober us and if this doesn't provoke us to earnest evangelism, then you and I aren't paying attention. The defeat of God's enemies is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory. Oh, friend, I beg you not to ignore the coming judgment of God. I know what a hard edge these verses are, but I, with all my heart, I know that the train is coming. I believe that the train is coming, and I beg you to step off the tracks. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, God reconciled us to him. At this time, today, today that is the day of salvation, God is calling all of his enemies, all those opposed to him, to come and experience him as a refuge and a shield. And if you flee from your sin like every Christian in this room has fled from their sin, God will become a shield of refuge to you. The fireworks of his glory, the brilliance of his holiness, the concussion of his power, the invitation to his mercy will become utterly compelling and gripping to you. And he will become for you the only firm refuge in an embattled creation. And if there was any doubt, the song now insists in its closing that we look far beyond David to his offspring. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. God's deliverance of us does not mean that we won't die but it does mean that we will live forever. There is no cause for fear. God is our deliverer and our great enemy sin has been defeated. Disasters will cease and a new creation is coming. Diseases will cease and a resurrected body is coming. Disobedience in the hearts of God's people will cease 
and our glorification is coming. Demons, including Satan himself, will be defeated. Their doom is sure. Death has been conquered and everlasting life has been purchased for us. Therefore, we have no need for fear. We can endure disease and aging bodies. We can withstand a creation that's disordered and dysfunctional. We can fight sin and pursue righteousness. We can press the hope of the gospel across the street and among the nations. We can resist Satan's deceptive hold on our neighbors, knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Oh Lord, we call upon you now. We express our gratefulness that you have come and you have rescued. Yes, you stand against our sin. Yes, you stand against your enemies. But yes, you call your enemies to come and find refuge in you. While we were still enemies, while we were still opposed to you, you sent your son to rescue us. We praise your name together in his name. Amen.